Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in the Word of God this morning to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. The date was October the 31st, 1517. Martin Luther approached the castle door at Wittenberg. And on that very important day in church history, he hammered what we know now as the 95 Theses. And almost as if the reverberations could continue to be felt in Germany and and as they made their way around the world, Martin Luther almost overnight became a hunted man. You see, the Roman Catholic Church, the most powerful institution in the world in the 16th century, didn't have any kind words for Martin Luther. And so they began a manhunt. And it was less than four years later, in the month of April, in the year 1521, that Martin Luther was summoned to the city of Worms. And as he made his way to Worms, he knew that his, his neck was on the line. And as he stands before uh, the Roman authorities, they had placed his books on a table, and these books were stacked up. And the official from the Roman Catholic Church said to Martin Luther, Are these your books? And his response was in the affirmative. And once they verified that these books were written by Martin Luther, he was asked to publicly recant. And it might surprise you because there is one movie that provides this rendition where Martin Luther uh, comes back with this bold speech. And that's not exactly what happened. When he was asked to recant, he said, I need a night to think about it. And so graciously they gave him this night to think about whether or not he would recant of all these writings. When he came back, he was asked once again, Mr. Luther, are these your books? And indeed they were. And now the question before us all is, will you recant? And Luther responds with these well-known words, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Close quote. The central question, as we learned last week, of the Protestant Reformation is simply this. How can a sinful person stand in the presence of of a holy God. The way we like to phrase that question in the 21st century goes something like this. How can I know that I'm saved? And before we answer that question that, that many of you already know, and I want to encourage you, if you know the answer to the question, please revel in the answer. Delight in the answer. We'll get there in a moment. Before we answer the question, we need to ask, why do we need saving? Why do we need saving? And so I want to have you look with your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, and we will see why it is that we need saving. 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. When we ask the question, why do we need saving? We need to recognize and, and constantly turn back to the scriptures and realize that apart from God's grace, apart from God's grace, we were dead in trespasses and sins. If you look in verse 1, Paul says, and you were dead It's a very interesting Greek word that the word dead is translated from. It's the word nekros. And here's what it means. It means one who has breathed his last. It means one who is lifeless. This is a very crude illustration, but I think it makes the point well. Many of you know that we had a dog by the name of Ginger, a dash hound. And I didn't realize how much I loved Ginger until... The day came to put her down. I'll never forget, Jereen came here to the church and she came into the door of my study and she said, Honey, we, we've got a, a huge problem. Ginger's shaking. She, she listed off a whole uh, list of, of symptoms and she said, I, I think it's time. It's the most merciful thing to, to put her down. And so that was about 9.30 on a Wednesday. And within an hour and a half, I was at the animal hospital, holding my shaking dog in my arms and asking for this doctor to put my dog down. And as he administered the, the, I guess you can call it poison, and Ginger breathed her last, he put Ginger in a box because I was too cheap to pay for burial. And I took Ginger home, and Dreen was not there at this point, but I went to the backyard behind the fence, and I started with tears in my eyes digging this hole. And about halfway through the digging of this hole, Jereen arrived, and she said, Honey, how you doing? I said, Not very good, you know? I didn't think it would ever happen. I didn't think that I I would be so emotional about a ridiculous dog. And I, I finished digging the hole, and now was the moment of truth. I would need to open up the box and lift my dead animal and put ginger in the hole and i looked at jereen and i said i don't think i could do it i i don't think i can look at her she said well we really don't have any choice let's you know you can so i i opened up the box expecting to see ginger and mercifully this physician had wrapped ginger in a towel so i didn't have to look at her and so I, I lifted this, this corpse and I, I held this corpse in my arm and I gently placed our beloved dog in the hole. And I began to put the dirt on the hole. Now think about this. If one of the children in the neighborhood would have seen this taking place and they said, oh, Pastor Dave, Pastor Dave, no, we want to play with Ginger. Ginger, wake up. Ginger, come back to life. Ginger, open your eyes. We're going to throw the ball and you can play. The response from Ginger is simply, how dead was Ginger? 
Princess Bride fans. Not mostly dead. She was dead. Kaput. Deader than a doornail. And in the same manner, this is exactly what Paul says is our condition before we receive grace. We look at it again in verse 1. And notice the past tense. And you, this is those of you who are in Christ. If you're a Christian, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, unconverted people, unregenerate people are like ginger. Unconverted people are spiritual corpses. They are destitute. They are without life. They are without hope. They are without God. And here's the important thing to take home is they lack the ability to please God, serve God, worship God, and they lack the ability to incline themselves to God. In fact, the unconverted person has no desire to believe in God. This is the most hopeless situation we could ever imagine. We're, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 2 says that we, apart from grace, we're walking according to the dictates of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You say, what does that mean? It means this. It means you loved the devil. It means you love the ways of the devil. It means you love the ways of the world. It means you were a narcissist. You loved yourself. You loved the world. You loved the devil. Your flesh dictates to you. And that's exactly what verse 3 says, that apart from grace, we were living according to the passion of the flesh and in bondage to sinful impulses. Jesus says it like this in John chapter 8. Anyone who is a prisoner is a prisoner to sin. You're a slave to sin. Moreover, verse 3 says that apart from grace, we were children of wrath. Apart from grace, our hearts were wicked and unrighteous. No desire for God, no inclination to do good for the glory of God. The word of God says in Romans 3 that apart from grace, we hated God. Many of you have heard me say this from this pulpit. I've said it many times and will likely, by God's grace, say it many times again in the future. And it's something that makes people very upset. Jonathan Edwards says that unconverted man would kill God given the opportunity. Unconverted man, Edward says, is, is spitting poisonous venom in the direction of God like a snake. You see, we hated God apart from grace. We were hostile to God apart from grace. We were slaves to sin, enslaved in sin and unable to come to Christ apart from God's empowerment. It is in this context that we begin to comprehend the need for God's grace. And I believe that the, the portrait of God's grace is best seen against the backdrop of our previous condition. That's why whenever we study the grace of God, we begin in Ephesians 2 and we learn about our previous condition. We begin in Romans chapter 3 and we learn about our previous condition apart from grace. And so just as the beauty of a diamond is accentuated by the black velvet, so too the salvation that God sovereignly grants is accentuated by the black velvet of our sinful condition. 
So who is behind our salvation? How are we saved from the wrath of God? And what exactly are we being saved for? If you were here last week, you know that we began a new study that will take us through the end of October as we move closer and closer to the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. The title of this series is Always Reforming, The Marks of a Faithful Church. Now, a title like Always Reforming in this community might get some raised eyebrows because reforming means different things to different people I've learned in Whatcom County. But here is what I want to communicate. We were reminded last week by way of introduction that, that a faithful church believes this. A faithful church believes that sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the word alone, to the glory of God alone. We call those the, the five solas of the Reformation. These are doctrinal anchors, if you will. And these doctrinal anchors should receive widespread agreement from Protestants. These doctrinal anchors should, in my view, be embraced by charismatics. They should be embraced by Methodists. They should be embraced by folks at Calvary Chapel. They should be embraced by all the Baptists. They should be embraced by all the Presbyterians. And so this is not a sectarian message. This is a, a widespread message doctrinal anchors that we must embrace. This morning, our challenge is to begin to walk through piece by piece and examine the solas in a more comprehensive way. I don't know how many of you were frustrated last week. I received a little bit of feedback like, Pastor, like, are you serious? Five solas in one sermon? All right, we're going to back up the truck and we're going to sola number one, sola gratia. And that is the title of the sermon. Now, sola gratia is a, a Latin term that became popular during the days of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. It simply means grace alone, grace alone. And what we'll do over the next five weeks is, is surface some, some statements that are included within the Christ Fellowship Statement of Faith that are a reflection of each sola. I want to show the first one to you. It simply says this, we believe that sinners are saved by God's grace alone. Because apart from his grace, we do not have the ability nor the desire to please him or earn his favor. Would you look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 and as we read our passage, stand together as we begin in verse 4. And notice with me the important first two words that are in the context of our previous condition that we just discovered in verses 1 to 3. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one 
may boast. Let's pray together. Father, as we launch into this study and and begin to examine in a very careful way uh, the importance of each sola that surfaced in the Reformation, we are reminded that uh, these were merely uncovered in the 16th century. These have been realities that have existed from all eternity. Now, God, I pray that you would help us to be careful to, to guard these doctrinal anchors so that we would never again in the, the church walk through a period known as the, the dark ages where the gospel, the light of the gospel becomes eclipsed. God, we remember just a few short days ago what it's like to be a part of an eclipse. And we realized that during the dark ages, it was hundreds of years that the, do- the doctrines of grace were obscured, were eclipsed because of man-centeredness, because of religion that was focused on what man can do, not what God has done. And so guard us ever so carefully, God. Help us to be reminded of the importance of these doctrinal anchors. And I pray that you would bring a rich encouragement to your people. Also, God, I pray if there's anyone here who is yet to, to come uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ in simple faith, that perhaps today would be the day of salvation. Today would be a, a, a special event, just like we learned from Rick and Gail, that there would be someone who would cast all their hope and future exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished on Calvary's cross. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning's message, in some respects, is very simple because I only have two main headings. And admittedly, those main headings are going to have some, some, uh, some expl- explanation uh, along the way. But the first heading I want you to see is this, is that salvation is generated by God. Salvation is generated by God. And here we ask, who is it specifically who is behind our salvation? Well, the Bible is clear on this subject. The Bible says it like this. In Jonah chapter 2, the word of God says, salvation belongs to the the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's interesting because at the end of that sentence, there is a period There's not a comma. What some evangelicals have done is they have affirmed that salvation belongs to the Lord, but they put a comma or they put an and unwittingly. And I want you to remember this morning that salvation belongs to the Lord, period. Salvation, you see, is generated by God. I want you to look with me at the fact of regeneration. The fact of regeneration, and we begin in verse 4 with those two crucial words. Now, we've, we've provided the backdrop. We've seen that apart from grace, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We've seen that apart from grace, we, we, we are lovers of the devil. Apart from grace, we are children of wrath, unable to please God, unable to approach God, unable to worship God, unable to believe in God. And then we get to verse four and it should cause you to do the same thing that many of you did during the time of worship. It should cause your heart to well up in, in worship and love and admiration for all that God has accomplished in Christ. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. As we look at the fact of regeneration, I want to provide a a, a very simple definition. 
Regeneration is not a word that we, we tend to throw around, even as Christians. But it's a very important theological reality defined as follows. Regeneration is the decisive act of God whereby he sovereignly grants new spiritual life to dead people. Let me read it again. Regeneration is the decisive act of God whereby he sovereignly grants new spiritual life to dead people. Now, I've, I have believed and embraced the, the doctrine of regeneration for many years now. But it wasn't until about, oh, 15 years ago, I, I heard a story that, that vividly displayed what regeneration is all about. Some of you know and love, as I do, C.J. Mahaney. Now, C.J. Behaney, before he became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, shared in this message the context of his salvation. And oh, what a story it is. It goes something like this. He was with his buddies in the living room smoking pot. And he said, and I'm quoting as, as close as I can remember, all I can tell you is this. One minute I was smoking a joint. The next minute I was regenerated. Wow. That's what happens with regeneration. You're, you're smoking a joint. You're driving down the road. You're sitting in your office. You're sitting in a pew at Christ Fellowship, and wham, you're regenerated. You say, wait a minute. Somewhere along the way, I was taught you believe in order to get regenerated. You don't believe to get regenerated. Why? Because apart from grace, you are what? You're dead. And what power does a dead man have? Zilch, nada, nothing. Ginger, get up and let's play. My dog's dead. She's buried. She's gone. And so when C.J. Mahaney says, all I know is that one minute I was, I was smoking a joint and the next minute I was regenerated, he gives all praise and glory to God alone for regenerating him. R.C. Sproul says it like this. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit upon those who are spiritually dead. The Spirit recreates the human heart, quickening it from spiritual death to spiritual life. I hope while I'm reading this, you're going, yes, more, more, I like this. Because you know your previous condition. He says continually, regenerate people are new creations. Formerly, they had no disposition, inclination, or desire for the things of God. Now, they are disposed and inclined toward God. Sproul says, in regeneration, God plants a desire for himself in the human heart that otherwise would not have been there. Now, I want to have you take your Bibles with me, and I want to show you roughly six very important principles that we will place under this subcategory of the fact of regeneration. First, turn with me to John chapter 1. And I just want to share five or six passages in passing to indicate the importance of this doctrine of regeneration. The first one I've already mentioned several times, and it's this, that regeneration is the sole work of God. By the way, I like this sentence an awful lot. Are some of you with me? Regeneration is this. Steve's with me. It's the sole work of God. Which soul? Both souls. It is the S-O-L-E work of God. And it is the S-O-U-L work of God. It is the work upon your soul, but it is the, the, ex, the exclusive, the sole work of God. Now, 
John chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And for those who are, are captivated by what you might refer to as free will, this is the verse you will hear cited, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Open and shut case. Free will, right? We're forgetting verse 13. Who were born, that is, regenerated, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And so we see that regeneration is the sole work of God. It is the exclusive work of God. Turn over one page to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and look with me at verse 5. Here we see this amazing conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and, and he has some interesting questions. And Jesus comes to this point in verse 5, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, that is, regenerated, he cannot enter the kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of God, rather. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Here I want you to see that regeneration is the special work of the third member of the Godhead. One of the many responsibilities that the Holy Spirit has is to regenerate all those whom God chose before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Additionally, I want you to see that regeneration is the sovereign work of God. Look over a few books with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. And while you're turning there, I, I should tell you that if, if you are not inclined to believe in sovereign grace, if you're not inclined to believe in predestination or election, I need to tell you that I, I greatly sympathize with that. Some of you have heard my story. I went through four years of Bible college believing uh, I had a strong view of free will. I was a very strong Arminian. I did not believe in election, or, uh, unconditional election. I just didn't believe it. But one day, God gripped my heart with the truths of Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so we affirm together that when we learn about the doctrine of regeneration, that this is a sovereign work of God. Turn back to Romans chapter 4. Additionally, we see that regeneration is never based on works. That is to say, I don't do a series of steps so that God will regenerate me. Rather, Romans 4 says it like this. Now, to the one who works, Romans 4, 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his, his, as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. More on this next week. But to su suffice it to say, we need to remember that regeneration is never a result of works or anything I can say or do. Now, here's the controversial one. You say, what about the previous four? Look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And this is a... 
This is a point that I could probably leave out because I don't have much time to explain this this morning. But in the future, in a Veritas class, we will look at this in great deta- greater detail. And the principle is this, is that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. And I can tell you that I remember I was about 21 years old, maybe 22. And I, 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 I literally remember the first time I read those exact words that regeneration precedes faith. I was sitting in a Denny's in Lacey, Washington with my dear friend, John Voles. And we were reading Table Talk. Some of you read Table Talk. And I looked in Table Talk and I read these words, regeneration precedes faith. And I looked at my buddy and I said, what in the world is that? That is is not what I had previously understood. I had previously understood it to be like this. You believe, you have faith, so you get regenerated. I believe, and when I believe, God says, I will give you a new heart. That is not the teaching of the scripture. The teaching of the scripture is regeneration precedes faith. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes, that is, everyone who trusts, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born by him. That is to say, the spiritually dead person, the spiritually impoverished person, that person who is in the grave, What needs to happen? He doesn't need to believe. His heart needs to be quickened. His heart needs to be regenerated. And at that point, you'll have a new inclination to believe. And that leads us to the final point, that regeneration gives us new abilities and new inclinations. All inclinations and abilities that previously did not exist. Let me read from Ezekiel 36. And in Ezekiel 36, we, we, we find the promise of the new covenant. And it is an absolutely astonishing promise that is, is grounded and rooted all the way back to the first promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12. And here's what it says. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Simply put, when when your heart is regenerated, you now receive a, a new set of desires and inclinations that never existed before. Now you have a desire to worship God, love God, praise God, serve God, be with the people of God. That didn't exist one second prior to your regeneration. And I want you to see also that regeneration, as our passage clearly indicates, is linked to the riches of God's mercy and the riches of God's love. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Even, Paul repeats himself, when we were dead in our trespasses, that he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. One writer says that, Mercy means kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and the afflicted that is joined with the desire to help them. Remember, mercy is never obligatory. God's mercy is never obligatory. If if we say to God, God, you owe me mercy, then we have totally forgotten what mercy is all about. Would someone ask me, how you doing, Pastor Dave? 
Tyler, what am I going to say? I'm going to let you answer that question. Better than I deserve. Why, why do I say that? Well, along the way, along the, and I, I, I've said this many, many times. I love to give that answer at Jiffy Lube and Starbucks and Walmart and Safeway and in the park and wherever I'm at. Hey, how you doing? Better than I deserve. And you know what's interesting? Is from time to time, a Christian will say, I don't like that. I had one individual tell me, no, you deserve much better. And I said, no, you don't understand. I deserve to go to hell. And when you come to the place where you really confess it and say, me, in and of myself, I deserve to go to hell. And so when Tyler says, how you doing, Pastor Dave? Better than I deserve. Right? When we come to that place, we realize that mercy is never obligatory. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now quickly look with me. Let's move from the fact of regeneration to the fallout of grace. Very quickly, the fallout of grace in verse 6, we see that God raised us up with him. That is, God raised us up with Christ. That word raise up means to raise together from mortal death. And why would Paul use a word like that? Because we were mortally, help me, dead. We were mortally dead. So he raised us up together to a new and a blessed life that is dedicated exclusively to God. Also in verse 6, we see the fallout of grace where God seated us with him in the heavenly places. That phrase, seated us with him, literally means to sit down together. To sit down together. Notice the purpose now in verse 7. It is to show the immeasurable, surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How about an amen? Wow, this is incredible, incredible reality that salvation is generated by God. I promised you a second main heading and we'll close. I want you to see that not only is salvation generated by God, but salvation is by the grace of God. And this is something we have to get through our American schools, that salvation is by the grace of God. Verse eight, Ephesians two, for by grace You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And we need to remember this morning that the basis of salvation has always been the grace of God. There is never a time when the basis of salvation was anything but the grace of God. One of my heroes, Wayne Grudem, says it like this. He said, God's grace means God, God's goodness toward those who only deserve punishment. I think if you ask Wayne Grudem, Dr. Grudem, how are you doing? He would say something like this, better than I deserve, because he understands grace. Now, there's one definition of grace. You may have heard this somewhere along the way. And this is a definition I, I would strongly encourage that you don't write down. Right? Because sometimes you write down a definition. You're like, hey, Pastor Dave said. Don't write this one down. It's a bad one. Here's one definition. Grace 
makes up the difference in what we lack. Close quote. Think about that. Grace makes up the difference in what we lack. That is a very American definition. Ooh, I'm on thin ice on this one. That's very Whatcom County, is it not? Grace, it makes up the difference in what we lack. Jerry Bridges responds to this definition of grace, this horrible def- definition of grace, and he says this, Grace is not a matter of God's making up the difference, but God's providing all the cost of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, there is no price tag on God's grace. God's grace, according to Ephesians 2, is a gift. And by definition, a gift is free. Can you imagine? Dane, I give you a gift and you say, wow, thanks, Pastor Dave. And I say, oh, by the way, that'll be $9.99. Here, I didn't want that in the first place. You know, we just can't understand it because when you give a gift to someone, it's this is for free. And that's how the gift of salvation is. It's free. There is no possible way to to buy our way to God. There's no possible way to tithe our way to God. There's no possible way to ministry our way to God. There's no possible way to read our Bible to God. It's by grace alone through faith alone. A professor at Southern Baptist Seminary who's had a a mighty influence in my life, Dr. Thomas Schreiner. He says, we are not in Christ because of our own initiative, but by virtue of God's work in our lives. In other words, we do choose to be in Christ, but we only make this choice because God has effectively worked in our lives so that we desire to make this choice. And what Schreiner's referring to is the gift of regeneration, the miracle of regeneration. Once the Spirit of God turns our our stony heart to a a heart of flesh, now we have the ability to believe and love and worship God. And so how can a sinful person stand in the presence of a holy God? The answer is simply that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It is by grace alone through faith alone. As you survey the, the religious landscape, as you survey what Mormons are doing, as you survey what Jehovah's Witnesses are doing, what Muslims are doing, what Roman Catholics are doing, you, you look at whatever the theological tradition is, we see that salvation is either by works alone or it is by faith plus works. Historic Christianity is the only world religion that says you can have a right relationship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So I want to ask you as we close, Are you a religious person who is working your way to God? Or have you cast all your hope and future exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ? It would be as if I had a a gigantic pitcher of water. And that gigantic pitcher of water represented the pure grace of God. Do you know what happens when you put one drop of red food coloring in that pitcher of water? It pollutes the whole thing. You say, but it's only one drop. One drop is enough to pollute the whole thing. That is, a half-truth will have the same eternal consequences as an all-out lie. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, God saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, 
but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so exactly how are we saved from the wrath of God? How are we saved from the penalty of sin? How are we saved from the power of sin? The answer is one that you can, you can memorize right here and right now, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Yet, yet, we, especially as Americans, we are hardwired to think that we only get what we earn. One prominent theologian says it this way. Perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and grace alone for our salvation. It's difficult for pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people. Grace is for beggars. And we don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our own way. We want to atone for our own sins. We want to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. Close quote. It's interesting. Martin Luther, when he died in the early morning hours of February 18, 1546, his final words were consistent with the rediscovery that he made and all that he fought for. His last words were this. We are beggars. This is true. And he breathed his last. I think if we put ourselves in Luther's shoes and we begin to see that, that God does not owe us anything, that we are simply spiritual beggars that will be far better off in our lives on this earth. So I want to ask, are, are you a beggar this morning? Are you a person, on the other hand, who is proud to receive the grace of God? Or will you, will you be humble? Are you totally dependent on the grace of God? Do you believe in sola gratia? Or do you hold to some kind of works-based salvation scheme? Salvation is generated by God, by grace alone. Someone asked me last week, and so what is the practical application of the solas? And that's what we want to do at the end of each message. We want to ask, so what? Sola gratia, so what? Begin with salvation is generated by God. When we think that salvation is generated by God, that should humble me. That should humble you to think that in eternity past, God chose us. In eternity past, God chose me, a person who was spiritually blind and spiritually deaf and spiritually dead. It humbles me to know that he made the first move. And we've learned that salvation is by grace alone. When we understand that, we say that it humbles me to know that the only thing, as Luther learned, that we can offer God is the fact that we're thirsty. We are spiritual beggars. It humbles me to know that I could never earn the favor of God. It humbles me to know of God's grace, that it is totally undeserved. And so we're reminded that since God has been gracious to us, and listen carefully, because God has been gracious to us, our response to people in our communities is to be gracious to them. God has loved us with an everlasting love. He has granted his grace to us. And now we are called to reciprocate by loving people in our community. 
but being gracious to people in our community. And during the benediction this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a challenge. It's a very simple challenge, but it'll be a challenge that will enable Christ's fellowship to be a radical blessing in this community. See, you and I are totally dependent upon the grace of God in Christ. And this is the crucial lesson that the reformers rediscovered in the 16th century. They called it sola gratia, grace alone. It's what I like to call the reign of sovereign grace in the soul of man and woman. See, the reign of sovereign grace changed the life of Martin Luther and propelled him onto the world stage as he went from Worms to Wartburg to translate the Greek text into German, which further fueled the flames of the Protestant Reformation. Has the gospel that Luther rediscovered, has it radically changed your life? Do you stand forgiven by a holy God on the basis of grace alone through faith alone? I want to challenge you to to glory in the grace of God as he makes us into the kinds of people that he wants us to be. Let's pray. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a spiritually impoverished, dead sinner like me. Oh God, thank you for sola gratia. Thank you for using uh, the reformers to unearth this reality that has always existed. We thank you for uh, bringing it to the forefront of our hearts this morning. I pray as we prayed earlier that we would guard it, that we would cherish it, that we would recall on a daily basis that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And it's your son's worthy name we pray. Amen.